Thank you for listening to the Martinis and the Macabre podcast. This show contains graphic content and explicit language. It is intended for immature adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. excited yay about what were we excited about the true crime podcast festival next year that we have now registered and bought tickets to and we'll be involved in Woo! we're gonna do a thing a thing in a place that's what's happening yep yeah so you guys right now tickets are already on sale i know this is way in the future but next year july 13th 2019, there will be a true crime podcast festival at the Marriott in downtown Chicago on the lovely Magnificent Mile, which Martinis and the Macabre will now be a part of. Yay! And I, I, was, for- t- I was taking a good drink. Woo! <laughs> and I forgot Cooper's in Chicago now, so he pointed out that he could meet us. That'll be great. Yep. So if any of you guys are in Chicago or around Chicago or want to make the drive to Chicago, because it's going to be quite a drive for us too. Mark if it in we your calendar. We will be driving. If we choose to. We're not going to fly to Chicago. That's a conversation we can have later. Also, Kate from Ignorance's Bus will be there too. She is! We'll get to meet up with Kate! Yay! The only other podcaster we have yet to do a crossover with. Mm-hmm. I think um, uh, Murder and Such, I think, will be there. Yeah, I think they are too. Dark Poutine. Yeah. Oh, uh... I think all crime no cattle, not too a bunch of them. There's a, a lot of channel. the other podcasts on our network are going to be there, and I'm super excited. And if you get your tickets now, I they just went on sale this week, and I know the first 200 are at a really discounted price, so they're like 75 bucks a piece. So get them as soon as possible. I don't know if by the time this comes out, they will still have those available, but I know as time gets closer, the price goes up another, you know, five or ten dollars with each increasingly closer time period and the number of tickets that are available. So get your tickets now. Come see us. We would love to meet you guys and hang out. Dude, I'm looking at the Marriott where this podcast convention is going to be. And uh, we should probably stay in that hotel because it'd just be easier. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking this robe. (laughs) Yeah, it's the only thing we have left to do is to to book a room. So we'll probably have to get on that soon. It'll be fun. Mm Mm-hmm exciting but in the meantime let's talk about death (laughs) welcome to martinis and the macabre the podcast where we drunkenly discuss morbid murders mysteries and mayhem my name's erica and i'm joined by my husband and co-host billy i'm billy and we got a an interesting one for you guys tonight a little historical one if i may in this episode we are going to talk about one of the deadliest industrial disasters in U.S. history and the deadliest in the history of New York City. This topic is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, and it happened on March 25, 1911, and it killed 146 garment workers and injured an additional 71. So the factory was located on the top three floors of this very large building, and the top three floors were the 8th, 9th, and 10th. And the building was called the Ash Building. 
The building had been constructed between 1900 and 1901 and was owned by Joseph J. Ash, after whom it was named. It was known for having fireproof rooms, quote-unquote fireproof, which attracted garment maker businesses, such as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, because of the assumed safety of the building. I now, think you're asking for trouble. It's called Ash. <laughs> it's called Ash Building. But and it's spelled they, A-S-C-H. And didn't they say the Titanic was unsinkable? They did. Okay. That didn't last very long at all. Yeah, it looked good on paper. <laughs> so uh, businesses thought, oh, well, they have these fireproof rooms, which I don't know exactly what made them claim that these rooms are fireproof, other than maybe because the building was constructed out of all this, like, concrete and cinder blocks and non-flammable items. But, you know, once you put flammable items <laughs> in an area that may be considered fireproof... It ain't the, fireproof no more. It's not, it's not <laughs> fireproof any any longer. I don't think anything's fireproof. If you try hard enough and believe in yourself, you can catch anything on fire. You try and set stuff on fire with your mind, don't you? Yes, and I've pissed my pants three times. <laughs> Evidently, you've cleaned up after yourself because I haven't come across any pissy pants. I try really hard. <laughs> oh, man. One time, I tried to make um, our pet catch on fire with my mind, and it didn't work. I ended up trying so hard I pissed my pants, and then I was like, well, best way to get rid of my pissy pants is to go ahead and try to catch those on fire with my mind. Then I vomited because I tried too hard on that. Okay. So now we know what Billy goes through when he tries to set things on fire with his mind. Yeah. Hmm. I'm still hoping. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. Which which animal are you trying to set on fire? Family pet. And which one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what I, ha- I have to reach out to my snuggle bunnies about something, but I'll do that at the end of the show. Just remind me, okay? Okay. All right. So this building, the Ash Building... Still stands today. It's located at the time. I don't know if the addresses are still the same today, but at the time it was located at 23 to 29 Washington Place in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, just east of Washington Square Park. And it stood on the northwest corner of Green Street and Washington Place. And I'm only explaining all this so you can kind of get an understanding of the layout of the building. So it's on this corner. The two streets that intersect at that corner are Green Street and Washington Place. Now, because it was a relatively new building with these so-called fireproof rooms, air quote the fuck out of that, working for the Triangle Factory was a much sought after job in the garment business. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was owned by two Russian immigrants that went by the names of Max Blank and Isaac Harris, which I'm sure are probably not their birth names if they came from Russia. And if your last name is Blank, you didn't even try. <laughs> They produce shirtwaists, hence the name Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And I had to look up exactly what a shirtwaist was. I'm going to do that right now. So, evidently, a shirtwaist was a loose-fitted, button-down women's blouse with a collar and cinched waist that was incredibly popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So, instead of women wearing a one-piece dress, they began wearing skirts with a shirtwaist as a two-piece ensemble, which was a closer match to the men's attire of the time with the dress shirt and slacks. And if you look up pictures of a shirtwaist, as Billy is doing right now, you'll immediately go, oh, that's a shirtwaist, because you've certainly seen pictures of that time period with tons of women wearing them, along with, like, big floppy hats, 
See? That's a shirtwaist. <laughs> they, and they would wear them with the big floppy hats with flowers or feathers or fur on the side of them. You know what makes me think of? Hmm. Lizzie Borden. Looks like yeah. she would have worn. Like that. They kind of had the big poofy shoulder like areas. Pleated, pleated breast. Mm-hmm. And, um, high cuff on the shirt. On the wrist. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Evidently, that's a shirtwaist. I would have just said it was a fucking blouse. Probably not even a blouse. I don't even use the word blouse. I just say it's a fucking shirt. Fucking shirt. Dress shirt. There you go. (laughs) Well, the company employed a little over 500 workers, most of them young immigrant women, many of whom didn't even speak English. But their last names were question milk. What? Question milk. Question milk? Question question mark. (laughs) Because blank on here is spelled B-L-A-N-C-K. Yeah. So the floors of the company were like jam packed with sewing and cutting machines, making use of all available space on each floor. And you can look up pictures of this inside the factories. I mean, there were like these big long rows of tables with employees on each side at their sewing machines and they were like facing each other. And each of these rows of tables just had a little narrow lane between the rows to walk down. And since there were no laws at the time as to how many people could occupy each floor, they were packed in to get the most production that the space would allow. The yeah. most bang for their buck. If it fits, it ships. So it's not like today when you say maximum capacity and you see the sign on the wall. They just fit everybody in there like a fucking sardine. With a bunch of flammable items and machinery. I bet that's why it says where well, we have maximum capacity laws now. Oh, oh, I'm sure. It probably played a big part in that. The floors were also packed with highly flammable objects like bolts of fabric cotton and paper templates and scrap fabric bins. And this was all way before any kind of like fire retardation treatment of clothing or fabrics. So everything was just ripe for fire. (laughs) (laughs) Cans of gasoline sitting next to bales of hay. (laughs) It was similar to that. Next to Roman candles. And now aside from this obvious problem that, you know, we can see in hindsight, there were also few working bathrooms There were narrow and poorly lit stairways, poor ventilation, which led to conditions ranging from extreme heat to freezing cold for the workers. The employees worked a crazy number of hours. Now, different sources claim different hours for the work week. Some say it was seven days a week. Some say six. Some say nine hours a day. Some say 12 or more. So if we just go by what Wikipedia claims... Wikipedia says they worked nine hours during the day, during the week, and then seven hours on Saturday, which would be 52 hours a week. Chances are that many worked as many hours as they could get because they made shit back then. There weren't restrictions on how many hours employee could work back then as well. So many probably worked a lot more than 52 hours a week because if they don't have law saying you can't go over this, Fuck it, I'll work myself to death. As long as they pay me. These are immigrants that don't know anything about this country, they can't speak the language, and they're trying to make ends meet in this new country. They're going to work as many hours as they can. Ooh, they can't speak our language, but money talks. Money talks. Yeah, Billy! Holy fuck! Bullshit walks. Don't add to it. Woo! That's the saying. (laughs) I wasn't adding to it, I was just... I was just repeating it. <laughs> okay, so, and of course, I I really don't use 
Wikipedia as like my sole source of information. I promise guys, I always just use it kind of as a reference to see what they say and then compare it with other things. But just going off of what Wikipedia says, these workers earn between seven to $12 a week. I know it's 1900s, but seven to $12 a week, which is the equivalent of 171 to 293 dollars a week by 2016 currency standards. Sounds about right. Or the equivalent of three dollars and twenty cents to five dollars and fifty cents an hour. Sounds about right. That's well below our minimum wage now. My great grandpa used to play for the Phillies. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, he made twenty eight dollars a week. Hmm. And he was a professional baseball player. Well, I. I'm sure professional athletes back then weren't paid nearly as well as they're paid today. But either. that's what I'm saying. That low, that low check, seven seven dollars. I bet you that's probably yeah right on. Well, I can remember specifically. I got a raise when I became a manager at Glorious Burger King in high school. Uh, so this was about 1997. She quit because she couldn't have it her way. <laughs> that's not true, but that's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I quit because the place was going to shit. I actually enjoyed being a manager and working there, but I digress. So it took me getting a raise when I became a manager to bring my pay up to five fifty an hour. So that's the high end of what this is the equivalent is. And I was only quote unquote allowed to work like twenty hours a week, but I worked a hell of a lot more, which I'm sure was very illegal and they could have gotten in a lot of trouble for it. Um, but as long as you kept bringing home those sweet, sweet free whoppers, <laughs> which made you had to get your fucking gallbladder. Yeah, taken I ended up having gallbladder surgery when I was 19, most likely because of the whoppers, <laughs> all that grease. I love those whoppers. <laughs> My gallbladder could not keep up with the amount of fat that the bile had to break down. Mine's mine's rocking it. Good for you. Yeah, it, it, good for the family. Good for everybody. Sad for my gallbladder. Bye, gallbladder. <laughs> so I brought home about $200 on average about every two weeks. So, and that was just a high school job. So I couldn't even imagine what $3.20 an hour would be like. And I mean, this was a 97, not even by 2016 standards. So if I made over $2 less an hour, good Lord. I mean, these people were making shit. So the factory was basically just a big sweatshop that hired in a bunch of immigrants that they knew they could work in these horrible conditions for shit pay because these people didn't know any better. And it was all they could do to make ends meet in a foreign country and try and, you know, keep food on their table and keep a roof over their heads. Now, on top of these shitty conditions, workers were docked on their pay for the needles, thread, and even the electricity they used while working. That's a bitch. So on top of that shitty pay they were getting, working all these fucking hours in these shitty conditions, we're going to dock you for every single needle that happens to break while you're working. And all that thread you happen to have to snip off the excess of, that's going out of your paycheck. I could, to a point, I could understand this company property, you have to replace it. There's a part of me that gets that, but helping pay the fucking power bill, but that's it's, bullshit. It's, it's part of the tools that you need to do your job. Well, I know, but like, say for instance, at my job, we don't take checks. So if you take a check and that bounces, you're paying for it. I get that. Yeah. So th- in that, that situation, end, that makes sense. On that end, I kind of see where they're coming from. It's a dick move for sure, but 
Like, okay, well, if you break it, then they have to buy another needle, and shit ain't cheap, so... Well, if your machine breaks a fucking needle... Uh, I get what you're saying. <laughs> it's to help pay the... The electricity that's they what, use? That's what's fucked up. It's like, why do I have to help pay for the electric? They're like, well, you want a job, don't you? You're kind of fucked. The electric, that they couldn't even afford to, you know, keep the stairwells lit properly. Yeah. Or have proper, you know, heat regulation in the building. But, anyway... Even though the factory thrived on the quick production of the garments and the workers were made to work as fast as they possibly could because the managers were like, hey, 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 we got to get it out. Come yeah. on, let's go. Time is money. They're we working. Ain't, we ain't got no money. Yeah, they're so working. Take your time. <laughs> they were working as fast as they possibly could. And if there was any type of error in the garment that they were making, they were charged for that as well. Even though they're being rushed to put this shit out and shit happens when you're being rushed. No, that's your fault. You fucked up that garment, that's coming out of your pay. Fucked up. I'm starting to see why places have suicide nets. (laughs) So even if their sewing machine was pushed to the limits and a needle broke or a stitch went crooked or the machine just fucking broke on them of no fault of their own, the employees were held responsible. It would be fucked up. You work at a factory and like you drill divots in the rafters, you know. Your, your drill bit breaks. They're like, ah, oh, your drill's fucked up. So the maintenance, the maintenance brings it back to you. They're like, that'll be 10 bucks. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's fucked up. Now, a common practice at the time in many businesses like this was to lock all of the exit doors except for one in an attempt to cut down on unauthorized breaks and so that when the workers left at the end of the day, managers could line them up and search their purses to make sure nothing was being stolen, i.e. needles, threads, scraps of fabric, etc. You know, all that shit that they're being docked for. Yeah. So they were like, nope, you line up, come out the store. So they would keep the other doors locked, except for one, all day while they were working. Well, workers soon became uh, fucking tired of their unsafe working conditions and the horrible hours and pay. So they held a strike in September of 1909 which started in the Triangle Factory and quickly spread across the city's other factories. And it was the first large strike of women in the U.S. and was dubbed the Uprising of the 20,000. That's cool they call it that. I thought it would be something because it's, it's from back then. You know, it'd mm-hmm. be like sandwich makers going crazy or something, something sexist, <laughs> you know. Like, oh, this is the, the this strike is called these biddies or something like that. <laughs> yeah. That's cool, the uprising of 20,000. Oh, that sounds nice, but we'll see. It was made up of the same mostly young immigrant women that were employed in these types of factories who just wanted better working conditions. But many women were publicly embarrassed or hauled off by the police for quote-unquote disorderly conduct. Many companies did allow unions to be created, improved safety on their sites, and compromised on hours and pay for their workers, but not Max and Isaac at the Triangle Company. They held out longer than most of the others, eventually only allowing minimal concessions to pay in hours. The strikers, needing their pay, they needed to get back to work, eventually just gave up and accepted the few allowances made by the company. Not really getting much better conditions at all. We will unlock two doors. <laughs> no, they didn't do that either. Hence the fire tragedy. So, two years later, on Saturday, March 25th, 1911, with no changes to the actual factory safety that workers had tried to fight for, the worst case scenario happened. 
It was near the end of the workday for the hundreds of employees at the Triangle Factory. Owners Max and Isaac were on the site and even had some of their family members uh, meet them at the factory, and they were there as well. Uh, They were all planning on going shopping and shit after closing time, so their families had come to meet them while they were waiting on the the factory to close. At approximately 4.40 p.m., a fire started in a bin under one of the tables in the factory. Some sources label it as a scrap bin under a cutter's table where they would just, you know, they'd cut out the fabric they needed and throw the scraps in the bin. Another source stated it was a bin where about 120 layers of fabric had just been stacked prior to cutting. Either way, there's a bunch of fucking fabric in this bin and the shit caught on fire. And this was in the northwest corner of the eighth floor. So the bottom floor of the factory, but the eighth floor of the building. I think it was somebody that was like, you know what? I'm fucking done. (laughs) Fuck this shit. A survivor later indicated that a blue glow was seen coming from the bin. The fire quickly ignited the tissue paper templates that hung from the ceiling. Once they ignited, the embers that fell off of the templates floated down to the tables where fabric was being sewn or cut. Flaming snowflakes just (laughs) falling down. Yeah, almost immediately spreading the fire from table to table. Chaos ensued, as there had never been any kind of fire drills or preparation for this scenario. Though the company, they, they did keep a dozen pails of water in case of a fire. Dozen pails of water. Oh, well, good. They got that covered. In case of a fire. That's Cause, called planning. Because, you know, those pails of water were going to put out a massive fire in a factory full of fabric and paper. Erica, you're starting to show your ignorance. Water is fire's enemy. Yeah, but yeah. you have to have more of it. Than the fire. Well, you gotta know where to put the water. The fucking building is flammable. You gotta know where to put it. Okay. Put it on the fire. Fire snow. You just said it yourself. Twelve pails of water are gonna stop fire snow? If you try hard and believe in yourself. (laughs) If you really want it. Oh, okay. So it's it's their fault, huh? (laughs) Well, there there was... I, I... do you want to concede this? There was a fire hose that a manager tried to use, but oh. the but the hose was rotted and the valve was rusted shut. So <laughs> it's connected to nothing. It was just there for aesthetic. Pur- it was just there to it's make a you hose. Feel- it was just there to make you feel safe. <laughs> nope, it, it was rotted. Valve was rusted shut. So no water coming through that hose. There's all of their fire preparation <laughs> options. They went to get the hose, but it was on fire too. <laughs> Well, a bookkeeper on the 8th floor called the switchboard operator to be connected to the 10th floor, which is where all the executives worked. They were able to warn them of the fire, so Max, Isaac, and their family members took the stairs up to the roof, where they managed to make it to safety onto another nearby building's roof. But in the meantime, the switchboard operator failed to relay the message to the 9th floor. You know when they made it to the roof? That was the birth of parkour. (laughs) Really? Yep. It goes back to to 1911? Yeah. And I tell you what, every cloud has a silver lining. Okay. Maybe. In Billy's world? That's why I think I got that score on that psychopath test. Because it's like, you know, why did you murder your sister? It's like, well, you murdered her because that guy's going to come to the funeral. And then you'll be able to get his phone number and stuff. You'll be able to get his name. Because every cloud has a silver lining. You shouldn't have probably killed your sister. But hey, make sure it wasn't in vain. Make something good out of it. You got a booty call? Yeah, smile at the end of the day. You know? (laughs) 
Make the most of what the world has offered you. Yeah. Well, life hands you lemons, make chocolate milk, and then the world will be confused. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but that's my little piece of advice to the world. All right. Guys, put that in, in your notes. I'm, I'm sure you're all sitting there vibrant, vibrantly. I don't even know what the fucking word is. <laughs> Doing shit with paper. You're writing notes. <laughs> I can't even think of a fucking... Erica, stop. <sighs> Actually, um, this might be a time to tell you that I gotta poop. poop. Okay, go ahead. So, yeah, so anyway, the employees on the ninth floor didn't get the memo, and they had no clue that a massive fire was roaring right beneath them. And survivor Yetta Lubitz claimed that the first warning that the ninth floor workers got was the actual fire itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first warning they got was the guy in the corner by the door going, "Smell that?" <laughs> <laughs> and if that's where the executives are, that's where paper is. This makes it worse. <laughs> the executives are on the tenth, so eighth and tenth know that the fire's roaring. Ninth has no fucking clue until the flames are licking at their fucking feet. And one guy pulling his collar because it's hot. <laughs> like, Woo! What is this? Heat wave. <laughs> so there were several exits in the building, including two freight elevators, two stairways, one to Green Street and one to Washington Place, the two streets that the the intersection corner that the built that thing. I can't word today. You can't Erica today. <laughs> I forgot how to Erica. The corner, the, the intersection, Green and Washington. There you go. And there was only one single exterior fire escape. City officials had allowed the building's owner, Joseph Ash, to put in the solitary fire escape in place of a required third stairwell. Because what's the worst that can happen? Why I mean, replace it? Just build one if it's required and keep your fire escape. Or, you know. Oh, no, no. They, they said, no. Well, you can just go ahead and put in a fire escape instead of doing that stairwell thing. I mean, oh, I got you. What, what are the chances, right? It's, it's fucking fireproof. Through the smoke and flames, people pushed towards one of these exits. The Washington Place stairway was locked, as was the unofficial custom, in order to cut down on theft and workers sneaking out for breaks. The foreman who had the stairway's key had already fucking jetted, and he saved himself and escaped by another route without unlocking the fucking door. I wonder if halfway home he felt the keys in his pocket and was like, oh, fuck. Well, I've gone too far. <laughs> yeah. The Green Street stairway was open... But the stairwell was only two and a half feet wide, so less than a meter wide. So, about as far as our legs are right now. Not very big. So, you pretty much had to go down one at a time. And it had no landing, so there wasn't like a, a large space where it turned, where people could congregate. It just was a tiny little stairwell, and you can actually look up pictures of it too. Looks like a fire trap, really. Yeah, and it was basically pitch black due to the poor lighting. And now, billows of smoke coming down the stairway. So workers pushed and piled up at the stairways, either unable to get through the locked door or to get down the single open stairwell quickly. One survivor later stated, quote, I was throwing them out of the way. I was pushing them down. I was only looking out for my own life. A young lady began to pull me at the back of my dress. I kicked her with my foot, and I don't know what became of her. Damn. End quote. She didn't give a fuck. <laughs> I wouldn't have quoted myself saying that shit, too. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, it was pretty hairy in there. That's about it. Like, I don't know what the fuck happened to her. I was out. 
The first ones to the Green Street stairwell either made it up to the roof or down to the street, but those behind them became bottlenecked in the dark stairwell and the door leading to it. In the panic, many were crushed and trampled to death by their co-workers. Within just three minutes, the Green Street stairway, the only available, became unusable in both directions. So many people ran to the two freight elevators in an attempt to escape. Elevator operators Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortalalo saved dozens of lives that day, making several trips up and down the building to bring people to the ground floor, risking their own lives. The elevators were built to only hold about 12 occupants, but many of the trips from the upper floors held about double that. They returned back up to the engulfed floor several times before the elevators no longer worked. Yeah, it was just a matter of time. Gasper had to give up when the rails for his elevator buckled under the heat and became immovable. So now with only one working elevator, panicked employees began prying open the elevator shaft doors. They jumped in and either tried to land on top of the elevator car itself or to slide down the car's cables. The added weight, along with the impact damage of people jumping on top of the car, warped the elevator that Zito was operating, forcing it to stop working. Many that jumped blindly into the shafts didn't know where the cars were located or how far the drop to the elevator car or the ground would be, so dozens of people died just on impact from jumping into a dark elevator shaft. Wow. The only other exit was the lone fire escape on the outside of the building. It was a flimsy iron structure that had been poorly mounted on the exterior wall. There are some claims that it may have actually been broken or weakened even before the fire, and there's also a claim that it didn't descend all the way to the ground, stopping at a height that wasn't even safe to jump from. I couldn't find a picture of the escape from before the fire, or one that showed like the entire length of it after the fire, so I can't verify that. But regardless, the weight of so many people clambering onto it at once, along with the weakening due to the intense heat of the fire, took its toll on the cheap fire escape. It twisted and collapsed, dropping about 20 victims, 100 feet or 30 meters to the concrete below. Well, okay. Devil's advocate over here. Yep, you're full of that tonight. They did escape the fire. (gasps) (laughs) The fire escape did its job. Only to be met with another tragedy. Yeah. Didn't say it was going to be nice. Didn't say it was Plummeting be... to their death. Man, every cloud has a silver lining, I'm fucking oh. saying, man. <laughs> it did its job until it broke. It's been my last thoughts, too. Plummeting to my death. I'm like, fucking really? Survive the fire to fucking fall to my death. And what's crazy is when they hit the ground, bodies rolled out of the way. They stopped. They dropped. And they rolled. <laughs> They did everything. They, they did. They did everything right. It just didn't work out the way they wanted it to. But I don't think they expected the drop to be that far. At the end of the day, it'd be weird to show up to the sea, like, okay, so what these people die from the fall. So not the fire, right? No, so put them in. Put them in that pile, I guess. Put put them under the put them put put them in the pile under the sign that says "survivors" in quotes. <laughs> While all this was happening inside, a passerby outside the building said, holy shit, (laughs) on Washington Place spotted smoke coming out of the eighth floor windows. They alerted the fire department at 4.45 p.m., an entire five minutes after the inferno started, which seems like an eternity considering how fast moving this fire was. 
the first fire engine, which was a horse-drawn fire engine. The horses were the engine. Yeah, kind of. Horsepower. Yeah. If you want to think about it that way, sure. We're a podcast of learning. Where are you now? Yeah. (laughs) Well, this fire engine arrived at 4.47 p.m., so, I mean, they were quick. Just two minutes after the alarm was sounded. Pretty impressive for a fucking horse-drawn fire engine. Good horsies. Not as impressive is the fact that their ladders, at full extension, only reached as high as the top of the sixth floor. Bad ladders. Almost 30 feet below the lowest level of the fire. Whoopsie daisy. They also had difficulty getting close to the building as people were now falling or jumping out of windows. That's right. They had to dodge people rain. (laughs) Oh, shit. It reminds me of the video games where stuff's falling from the sky and you have to move to dodge them. Yeah. Yeah, That's what the firemen were doing. (laughs) This makes me think of, well, I'm going to nerd out on you, is this game God of War Part 3 and you go to Hades and as you're walking around fighting all these things in Hades, the background is all people who are cast down to Hades falling. Damn. And as you're walking by them, you're like, 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 it's awful. You're like, you spend more time looking at the background. Like, oh, I'm getting hit right now. But like, you're looking at it like, God, this is just awful. <laughs> Smoky with a 70% chance of people. <laughs> uh, of course, a large crowd of bystanders gathered along the streets and watched in shock as people began to plummet to the ground below. Why didn't anybody, why, why didn't anybody grab sheets? You know, like jump and, you know. Well, we'll get to that. A man was noted to be the first to jump, and a short while later, another man was seen at a window kissing a young woman before the two joined hands and just jumped together. Wow. Because there were some men that worked here. They were usually, like, managers. You Mm -hmm. know, they didn't do, like, the sewing and stuff, but there were were some men in the building. A reporter named William Gunn Shepard witnessed the jumpers. Quote, I learned a new sound that day, a sound more horrible than description can picture. The thud of a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk. Jesus. End quote. <laughs> he learned all about the splat. God. Or the bounce. Mr. Shepard. <laughs> Some of the victims came down with such force that they broke through partitions that were in the sidewalk that like led to the underground, the sewers and all that stuff. And so their bodies actually landed underground. You think they screamed cannonball before they... I highly doubt it. Just my gut feeling. Well, no. it kind of bums me out they didn't. Sad Billy face. (laughs) I would have. (laughs) Another man, uh, Louis Waldman, who would later become a New York City Socialist State Assemblyman, described what he saw years later. Quote, Word had spread through the East Side by some magic of terror that the plant of the Triangle Waste Company was on fire and that several hundred workers were trapped. Horrified and helpless, the crowds, I among them, looked up at the burning building, saw girl after girl appear at the reddened windows, pause for a terrified moment, then leap to the pavement below to land as mangled pulp. This went on for what seemed like a ghostly eternity. Occasionally, a girl who had hesitated too long was licked by pursuing flames and, screaming with clothing and hair ablaze, plunged like a living torch to the street. Life nets held by the firemen were torn by the impact of the falling bodies. The emotions of the crowd were indescribable. Women were hysterical. Scores fainted. Men wept as, in paroxysms of frenzy, they hurled themselves against the police lines. End quote. 
So yes, they did bring nets to try and catch people, but they were fucking moving at a fast fucking pace, coming out of 8th, 9th, 10th floor, and uh, just ripped the net. And I actually read some reports that some of the firemen actually had like bloodied hands from the ropes being jerked oh. and pulled. Yeah. That sucks when you try your damnedest and it still just ain't good enough. Yeah. Well, they should have had a longer ladder. Well, they should have gotten those inflatable balloon things that you could power with a fan. In 1911. Haven't you fucking seen Lethal Weapon? 1911. Documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so everything in the past should meet our standards here in the future? Uh, Riggs and Murtaugh would certainly fucking agree. Oh, okay. I love the, the look of just... Satisfaction. Yeah. Because I'm up to my face. I'm up to my shirt waist with this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a clip from one of the documentaries I watched on YouTube called Triangle Remembering the Fire. It's a New York City fireman whose grandfather was a fireman at the time of the Triangle Fire. Outside the Ash Building that day, New York Fire Chief Edward Croker was seeing his most dire predictions come true. For years, his pleas for improved fire safety had fallen on deaf ears. And when firefighters entered the building, they discovered how sadly accurate his warnings had been. I'm Raymond Ott. I'm a New York City Fire Marshal. My grandfather, Andrew Ott, was a fireman. He was one of the first responders to the Triangle Sherbrooke's fire. My grandfather told me that women were jumping out the window, holding on to their pocketbooks. People were really yelling, don't jump, wait. He was in part of the recovery. They had to take the bodies and move them. He saw people melted together. I was at 9-11, and I was watching the people jump. It would be like one, two, three. People would jump out. It must have been very similar to what my grandfather saw that day. Yeah, so I wasn't going to try and quote that because his accent is so thick. I was afraid I would misquote him. I think, but, it's, I think it's good to hear it. But people were melted together. Yeah, so that, that can't be good. It only took the fire department 18 minutes to stop the blaze with their water hoses. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. But in those 18 minutes, 146 workers died from burns, asphyxiation, blunt impact injuries, or a combination of the three. Well, you just can't be fucking satisfied, can you, Erica? You know, they're doing their fucking best. Those horsies ran their asses off, and those hoes gave everything they got. And I don't mean pimps and hoes. I mean the hoes. Hoses? Is. <laughs> but we're going to talk shit about the ladders. It's it's not their fault that there were so many dead. It's the fire just, it went so quickly because you have all this flammable shit in this contained space. Shit's bound to get bad, and you have no way out. So, they got the blaze stopped in about 18 minutes, and most of the victims were recent Italian and Jewish immigrant women and teenagers aged 14 through 43. Oh, yeah, did I mention they had, like, teenagers working there because there weren't child labor laws back then, too? Why not? I mean, fuck, just throw that on there, too. So, yeah, most of these women and teenagers, 14 to 43, though 23 of the dead were male employees. The body recovery effort was started about three hours after the fire was put out, because they had to wait on shit to cool off. And you ha- you do have to go around the corner to have us have a cigarette and be like, God damn, what the <laughs> fuck was that? I gotcha. You gotta take... Have that cry like in Rick and Morty after they had that yeah. extremely bad yeah. adventure and they get back in the ship and they're just like, oh! <laughs> you, got- you gotta have a chance to deflate. Yeah. So, uh, 
Yeah, it was so psychologically traumatizing that the crews actually had to be changed out almost hourly. So people just wouldn't just go into hysterics. Yeah, sometimes you just gotta go home and have a good cry. Yeah. The charred bodies that had to be removed from inside the building were actually lowered down to the sidewalks at the end of ropes in full view of onlookers. Well, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not worried about the onlookers. They can go home. Well, the bodies were taken to Charity's Pier, which was locally referred to as Misery Lane, which well, is... if it wasn't, it is now. <laughs> it was. It was like a bad part of town, a seedy part of town, and they referred to it as Misery Lane. Hmm. Located at 26th Street in the East River. It'd be funny, like, you're bringing these bodies and you see this group of kids come out, you're like, you came to the wrong neighborhood, motherfucker. Are those charred bodies? <laughs> and, like, everybody would just move. They'd be like, oh, let them go. Let them yeah. go through. Holy shit. All the bodies were lined up in coffins so that citizens could walk by and try to identify them. Many were so badly burned or injured that identifying them was incredibly difficult. Some were identified by jewelry or specific shoes that they wore that survived the fire. And one young woman was identified just solely on the specific way that her stocking had been stitched. I don't know if it had like a repair on it or something, but somebody recognized it. I also read another one where a woman was able to... Actually, it was a girl recognized her mother because of the braid in her hair because she had braided her mom's hair that morning. That's really good attention to detail. Yeah. And as they were identified, personal funerals took place. Only six were left unidentified at the time, which is also pretty impressive. Yeah. Union workers wanted a public funeral ceremony for the unidentified victims, but the city refused because they're just assholes like that. So on April 5th, the day the city buried the six nameless victims... 300,000 people marched in an unofficial funeral procession slash protest through the rain. And there's pictures of that as well. You can see these processions with the rain pouring down. Oh, man. That's 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 beautiful. You're protesting the funeral of unidentified people that died in a fire, and you're doing it in the rain that would have put out fire. <laughs> a historian named Michael Horsch was later able to identify them after four years of research and they are now buried together in the Cemetery of the Evergreens in Brooklyn beneath a monument to the tragedy. After an investigation into the fire, the fire marshal concluded that the blaze likely started from an unextinguished match or cigarette butt that landed in the fabric bin that witnesses claimed the fire started in. Smoking was banned at the facility, but employees had been known to sneak cigarettes while working, exhaling the smoke down into their lapels to keep from being detected. I can understand you exhaling the smoke into your lapel and it dissipating and not noticing that. But what about the smoke from the fucking cigarette? I mean, how do you pull that one off? I don't know, but, you know, I don't knock them because all they had to do is open more fucking doors, let them have more breaks. When that sneak cigarette place wouldn't go on fire. Yep. But there have been other suggested causes for the fire. A New York Times article suggested that a faulty engine in one of the sewing machines could have sparked igniting the fire. There was also a series of articles in a magazine called Collier's that noted that there was a pattern of arsons in certain sectors of the garment industry whenever their main product went out of fashion or they had a large amount of excess inventory. Fires got rid of the unsellable inventory while reaping the company a large insurance payout. Which begs the question, why didn't they just have a fire sale? <laughs> <laughs> well, Max Blank and Isaac Harris were known for having previously had four suspicious fires at their companies, but arson wasn't suspected in this case, probably mostly because they and their own family members were present when the fire occurred, putting them at great risk. Though they weren't suspected of arson, 
Max and Isaac were indicted on charges of first and second degree manslaughter in mid-April 1911. Shouldn't you just be just be held liable in a civil court for negligence? Manslaughter seems harsh. Well, that'll come too. During the investigation, it was discovered that the door locks had been intended to be locked during business hours. The prosecution charged that the owners knew that the exit doors were locked at the time of the fire, which could legally find them at fault for trapping the workers inside. The three-week trial began on December 4th of 1911 in front of an all-male jury. The defense for the owners stressed that the prosecution failed to prove that the owners knew about the locked doors. The jury took less than two hours to deliberate, and they acquitted the business owners. They couldn't find enough evidence to say the owners actually knew that the doors were locked. Well, by the time it got to him, like, no, because all it takes is somebody to be like, hey, your factory's on fire. You know, that's all that somebody would have to tell them, and then they would know. And then they would know that they could also unlock those doors. Well, I'm not sure why the foreman that had the keys to the other stairwell, why wasn't he brought up on some charges? Yeah, he should have gotten a subpoena. I mean, he had the keys and he took the fuck off and left everybody trapped. But I didn't see anywhere in the research that anyone else was ever indicted for any of this. Not even the ladder manufacturer. (laughs) Now, a civil suit was filed in 1913, so two years later, against Max and Isaac and the two were found liable of the wrongful deaths of their employees. Now that makes more sense. The plaintiffs were awarded compensation of about $75 per deceased victim. But the insurance company that covered the Triangle Factory paid Max and Isaac about $60,000 more than their reported losses, or about $400 per deceased victim. So even after paying out the compensation, they still came out ahead about $325 per victim. Dicks. They actually made money off of the fire, regardless of whether it was intentional or not. And that same year, Max was arrested for, again, locking a door in one of his factories during working hours. His punishment? A $20 fine. Damn. (laughs) And uh, this is a clip from that same documentary I mentioned earlier. It's Max Blank's granddaughter talking about how she feels versus how a family member of a victim would feel. From a personal point of view, I'm happy that my grandfather didn't have to go to jail. Looking at it from the victims and their family's point of view, if my daughter had died in that fire um, and, you know, he hadn't been my grandfather, I probably would have shot him. Okay. Yep, I can understand that. Now, as a result of the fire, the American Society of Safety Engineers was founded in New York City on October 14th of 1911. A commission was also created by the New York State legislation called the Factory Investigating Commission. Their goal was to, quote, investigate factory conditions in this and other cities and to report remedial Remedial? and to report remedial measures of legislation to prevent hazard or loss of life among employees through fire, unsanitary conditions, and occupational diseases. And locked doors. End quote. Occupational diseases. What kind of occupational diseases did they have in 1911? Tuberculosis. Here we come. Full circle. (laughs) They held widely publicized investigations around the state, interviewing over 200 witnesses and taking over 3,500 pages of testimony. 
They also hired field agents to do on-site inspections of factories. Their findings led to dozens of laws that regulated labor in New York State, and the new laws mandated better building access and egress, the installation of alarm systems and automatic sprinklers, better eating and toilet facilities for workers, and limiting the number of hours that women and children could work. But not men, so fuck men, I guess. Oh. <laughs> We're going to limit how much you ladies and kids can work, but guys, fuck you. I think it's fair because men are blamed for being so sexist and and, and bigots and, and just assholes and... We beat women and we kill women and we're just monsters when you think about it. So, yeah, we'll take the bullet. It's okay. All right. I get it. Fair. Billy's going to take it for all you guys. He's going to say it's okay. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I mean, if if you're going to say that you're going to grab him by the pussy, I'd rather you just stay at work and never come home. <laughs> the last living survivor of the fire, a woman named Rose Friedman, was just two days shy of her 18th birthday when the fire happened. She passed away at the age of 107 in Beverly Hills, California on February 15th, 2001. I bet, right, you know, like months leading up to her death, they're like, what's your secret? And she's like, not catching fire. (laughs) The Ash Building survived and was able to be refurbished. There are three plaques on the southeast corner of the building that commemorate the victims. The building is now owned by and is part of New York University and is now called the Brown Building. What a plane. The brown building. Ash building didn't work. (laughs) It has been designated a New York City landmark as well as a National Historic Landmark. On December 22nd, 2015, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that $1.5 million from state economic development funds would be earmarked to build a memorial at the site. But it doesn't appear that it has yet been started. You can visit uh, RememberTheTriangleFire.org to learn more or donate if you'd like. And that's the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. (sighs) (laughs) I don't know why between 2015 and now nothing's been started. Why they're still trying to get donations. Uh, I'm not really sure what's going on with it. But there, I guess, are plans to build this memorial and it'd be crazy if they put the monument up and somebody caught on fire if it i guess what what it showed in like the pictures what they plan to do is like put these little i don't know they're not really like handrails but these little plaques that run in a long line along the side of the building kind of like at waist or chest level and it has like their names and like it's the story of what happened on it i guess that's what they're visualizing but we Nothing's will, been done yet. We will put up bronzed bolts that should have held that fire escape. <laughs> and the extra 30 feet of ladder will be bronzed and hanging off where it should have been. That'd be cool. Like, like you know, you're, you're busy. You're like, why is there a chunk of a ladder hanging off the eighth floor? And you're like, well, sit down. Let me <laughs> tell you about that. And I'm sure they've probably fixed the stairwells so that they're wide enough for you to get down and have landings. I'm sure they're probably well lit. So I'm pretty sure it's all up to code now. It's up to speed. So, yeah, that's what happened uh, in 1911 at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It sounds kind of morbid and, dare I say, macabre, to show up for a tour in one of those flame suits they wear in movies. You know, when they let, let light the person on fire mm-hmm. and they walk around going, rrr, rrr, rrr. Like, usually... Usually it's a Friday Thirteenth movie. Let's be honest. Still, <laughs> to show up at that, <laughs> you're just walking around 
Any questions? You like raise your hand. <laughs> you, the guy in the fucking flame suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, guys, let us know what you think about it on social media. We're on Facebook at Martinis and the Macabre, and you can also find our fan page on Facebook called Friends Who Like Martinis and the Macabre. We're also on Twitter at Martini underscore Macabre and Instagram at Martinis and the Cob. Martinis and the Macabre. I can't speak. You're having a hard go at I know. And Instagram at Martinis and the Macabre. And don't forget to share our post to help spread the word. So let us know what you think. You said you wanted to say something to the Snuggle Bunnies? I need I need help. Well, we all know that. You're psycho. Oh, come on. That's not fair. <laughs> I'm adorable. You said yourself that you have psychotic mind. I, I Psychopathic tendencies, but that doesn't necessarily make me a bad person. I didn't say it did. I'm a fucking hoot. Now, anyway, this will make Erica laugh immediately, but if anybody knows anything about apps, um, there's got to be at least one of you out there <laughs> who knows how to make an app. It's not for Martinez and Macabre. It's for my work. And uh, I got the app built. I just have to enroll through Google and Apple, and I don't know how. Uh, last app we had crashed on us, but when we had it made, the guy that made the app did all that for us. Now, this new company, they're like, we'll give you the template to make it, but you have to get a hold of Google, and you have to get a hold of Apple and pay the money, which I could do. I just don't know what to do. So, um, if anybody could like walk me through that, that would be really <laughs> cool. Like, just... It's William Matthew Jones on Facebook, and you can just send me messages. Just send me direct messages, friend me, and I'll be like, new phone, who dis? And you'll be like, app, bitch. And I'll be like, damn. And then I'll be like, okay, you're now connected on Messenger. And then we'll just talk it out. <laughs> I don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. Billy's ready to pull all of his hair out over this fucking app situation. <laughs> Ugh. So, uh, yeah, if you can help him. Send him a message. Send us an email. I need Mar- help. Martinis in the macabre at gmail.com. Help me. Hit us up. <laughs> so thanks for listening to this episode, guys. If you liked what you heard, please get on iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. This is the best and easiest way to help us, honestly. It really helps with the visibility of the show. It makes us easier to find. And we know that it can be a pain in the ass, if, especially if you don't have an Apple podcast or iTunes account. But we would really appreciate it. I mean, and you can just put like suck it audible in the review if you want or that'd be great. <laughs> any other catchphrase that you would like. I mean, it doesn't matter what you say, but if you can get on there and do that would be greatly appreciated. And please check out the other great podcasts on the Murderly Network and show them some love. You can find all of us at murder.ly. And actually, if you go to the website for the podcast festival, it's at TCPF for True Crime Podcast Festival 2019.com. And you go to that and look down in the bar. There is, you can click on registered podcast. That'll show you who all is going to be there in Chicago next year. We're on there too. But a lot of the other Murderly Network podcasts will be there as well. So go check that out. That Once again, that is TCPF2019.com. And there is a a link on there for you to buy tickets. So go check that out and show the other podcasters on the Murderly Network some love. And if you would like to be a real baller and financially support the show, please go to our Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash martinis in the cob. Make a pledge. I mean, even just $1 a month gets you access to our patron-only audio each month. You get a shout-out on the show. 
And for just a couple dollars more, you can get some exclusive goodies. I mean, we're sending out stickers. We're sending out certificates for surviving tuberculosis and heart failure. Billy's making some badass keychains. So all little snuggle bunny hands. woo My snuggle bunny paws. Yeah, so get on there and do that. I mean, you don't have to be a super amazing baller like Amy if you don't want to. Amy's but a baller, she's, yo. she's still our baller, yo. But, you know, even a dollar, it, it makes a difference. It really does. And it's, it's helping us greatly. We truly appreciate it. So once again, thank you to our patrons, Kate, Hunter, Cooper, Bridget, Molly, Sue, Holly, Heather, Stephen, Corey, Amy, Donald, Christy, and our newest one, Donovan. Hi, Donovan. We're still pulling for you, Donovan. Let us know how you're doing. Uh, you awesome snuggle bunnies have our undying love. It is totally appreciated. We can never thank you enough. You can also visit our website, martinisinthemacabre.com, to learn a little about us, listen to our complete episode catalog, or to listen to all the songs created by Minimus Noah that we use at the end of each episode. And keep listening, because of course there'll be another one at the end of this episode, and he's actually supposed to be sending me some new songs that he's made tonight, so maybe I'll have some new stuff for you guys soon. And be sure to find his first official album release called Views. It's on iTunes, Spotify, and many other music providers. And if you don't want to try and search it through there, just go on our website, go to the music page. There are links there to click to get you to where you need to go. For any questions, comments, topics, suggestions, or to help Billy with his app problem, help. shoot us an email at martinisinthemacabre at gmail.com, or you can use the contact page on the website. So uh, that's it for this one. Hopefully, we will see a lot of you guys in Chicago next year. I'm super excited. I've been to Chicago, but it's been years and years and years. So hopefully, we'll, we'll it won't just be that one day. Maybe we'll make it a couple days, go sightseeing or something. Yeah. Because you've never been to Chicago, have you? I have not. It'll be fun. Yep. We'll love to meet all you guys there. It'll be great. I'll totally hug you all. <laughs> all right. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And stay safe, Snuggle Bunnies. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.